Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm Matt. And I'm Julia. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Uh, so, Spectology is a science fiction book club where each month we pick a book, read it, and talk about it over the course of two episodes. We do a pre-read episode, which we've actually already recorded with our guest Julia this month um, and is earlier on in the feed. Uh, and then we do a post-read episode, which is today's episode. So, it'll be full spoilers for our book, which is The Tea Master and the Detective by Aliette de Bodard. Uh, if you would like to kind of learn a little bit more about the book without spoilers you can go ahead and listen to our pre-read episode about it um but yeah we'll be from the get-go just like talking in depth about the book the characters the plot the themes uh and anything else that we want to talk about um i also want to welcome julia back to the podcast uh julia rios is a hugo award winning and now nominated again editor uh she just got nominated at the most recent hugos for her editing work at fireside fiction and is um yeah a really cool person good friend and julia do you want to give the like short intro for yourself and folks can go listen to the long one at the uh, the last episode <laughs> Um, a short intro for myself is I, I'm an editor, a writer, and a podcaster. My most active things right now are This Is Why We're Like This, a podcast where we watch movies and television that we saw in childhood and relook at them with adult eyes. It's a comedy analysis podcast. And also, I recently worked on Machina from Serial Box, which is a very exciting... I was an editor on that one. Uh AI, terraforming Mars, space race, exciting inter-office drama series. It's super great. <laughs> Very, Very cool. cool. So we'll have links Jinx. to all of that stuff that she is. Uh, Julia has worked on as well as you can hear like a longer explanation for all of it on the pre-read episode, as well as some of the other cool projects she's worked on, like the Mexican X initiative. Um, yeah. So with that, Team Master and the Detective. How do we like it? Let's do our like mini reviews of it. Julia, since you chose it, do you want to do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. OK, so I chose it because I knew I already liked Aliette de Bedard's work and people had told me it was a cozy, nice read. Um, mm -hmm. So that was why I chose it, because I'm really looking for cozy, nice reads. And it absolutely <laughs> was. I really enjoyed reading it. And it was simultaneously familiar and sort of interesting and surprising. So I loved that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Matt, you've you did you reread it? I know you've read it before. I reread some of it. Uh, I didn't go through the whole thing start to finish, but just to like remind myself of what went down and what I liked. Um, and I also uh, really enjoy this this novella. It's it's awesome. It's very relaxing. Very cozy. Love a cozy mystery. Love a sort of Asian inspired sci fi setting. Absolutely love it. So a lot of stuff to love. Nice. Yeah, and I also I I really enjoyed it. I found it a um I mean just perfect uh both in terms of like it was cozy and like easy to read and like nice to read as well as it was short so I could actually finish it right now given my attention span is like that of a mosquito's at the moment. Um so I I really enjoyed it. That also sounds in some way dismissive of it. It's also a very like good book. Like I hope it doesn't sound dismissive. Um you know, I really loved it. I really I'm a big sucker for like Holmesian, like Holmes and Watson style stories. So I always love that and I thought that it was a um 
a very good example of that with a kind of like, you know, far future space opera setting that was at both a sort of um, familiar kind of space opera, but also one that had its own twists and turns in a lot of good ways. The setting does. So, yeah. All right. In in one interesting way, this book is sort of really easy to talk about um, because it's so fun and like satisfying and and you know some of the stuff we've read recently is much more difficult to talk about because it's more emotional and more like tough to read like sort of darker in some ways not that this book doesn't have its dark moments but i think the the coziness of the book makes it sort of easier to 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 talk about it flows and so that can that can be like a really nice thing right now Mm -hmm. it's funny by saying that you're talking about talking about it instead of actually talking about it, <laughs> potentially showing the lie to your word. <laughs> um, before, before we do go further, we should do our content warnings up front. Like I said, we'll, we'll be spoilers all the way through. Um, the book itself has some discussion of like, I guess we would call it like potentially child abuse or at least child neglect. Um, obviously it's like a murder mystery. So there is murder. Um, is there anything else? I think there's sort of like, I mean, I think that there's a lot of trauma and there's uh, oppressed people. So that, and there's sort of exploration Mm. of how people are oppressed in within systems in ways that can be traumatic depending on your background, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of goes along with child abuse, but it's not necessarily always children. Right. And I think like the ship fits into that as well. Right. Yeah. Matt, is there anything else that you can think of that were, yeah, that that's what I was thinking of in particular, kind of what Julia just uh, was referring to the, um, the nuns, I guess. Um, yeah. The sisterhood. Uh, yeah. The sisterhood. Yep. Yeah, that's a really, I mean, I would actually love to start just talking about the sisterhood because that was a really like interesting kind of, I like both plot and world building element. Like I, I was very like curious what I thought about that because on the one hand you have almost this sort of like, it's a general idea, right? Is It's like, so like I'm going to say this because tell me if I'm wrong, but the general sense I got from it is like the sisterhood is this like, it's almost like a union in some ways. It's like a group of people who do essentially domestic labor and like pool their labor resources together in order to be able to like have some sense of collective bargaining against the like main families and orbitals and whatnot who like hire their, you know, essentially like their cleaners. Um, But then at the same time, it took a very like, you know, like at the same time, there's something more than just a labor union to it. There's some sort of like larger ideology as well as like a kind of system of control, like internal to it. And I was very, um, I don't know. I, I, I sometimes like wonder when I read these kind of things, like we talked a little bit about it in the waste tide post read of like that book. There's this sense of like this guy who's trying to like help organize the downtrodden workers. But in the end it turns out it's like just for him. And he's kind of a bad guy in a lot of ways. And I felt kind of similar about this on the one hand, you have the sense of like, Oh, you have these like, you know, actual oppressed workers who like band together. But then at the end it turns out that like, Oh, well the leader is doing it for these self-justified reasons. And actually there's this kind of like bad ideology behind it. I was wondering what other people thought of that, like plot element in particular. I feel like it was a combination of that and also sort of a religion thing because Mm -hmm. there was a lot about breaking people down to sort of 
build them back up in the image that you've chosen, which can go with the military as well. But in this case really felt more akin to religious sort of cult Mm -hmm. feelings and cults can be built around anything. So you can totally build cults around domestic work. There are cults that exist that are like on communes making tofu. Um, Totally. (laughs) And I feel like the, the complexity of it is that it's unclear to me whether the grandmother of the, of the sisterhood is actually really trying to be malicious or actually thinks that she's doing something good. Mm -hmm. Because in the end she says, you know, Oh, well, you know, it wasn't supposed to happen. This, we should be able to use this cut right drug that isn't supposed to be, is supposed to be highly individualized for anyone that we want. And, uh, they're, they're not supposed to break space is supposed to help them understand themselves. Right. Yeah. And it's like how much of that is sincere and how much of that is a complete lie. But I feel like maybe some of it is actually something that she's lied to herself about at the very least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was the impression I got to lying to herself. Um, Yeah, you know, I'll be honest, when I first read the stuff about the sisterhood, I was a little troubled by the idea that there might be some kind of vaguely anti-union sentiment i guess um that's something that i have seen a lot you know in 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 culture but i don't think that's how i ended up after i had sort of finished the the book i think it felt more like um it felt like you know it reminded me a lot of of um so i don't know much about vietnamese culture or vietnam but i know something about um other southeast asian cultures um and it remind me of of um, the way monastic communities can work in places like Myanmar and Thailand, um, mm. where they're very separate from the rest of society, um, and there's a lot of pressure for young people to join them in uh, mass and kind of commit themselves wholly to these sort of separate worlds, um, a little bit like a mandatory national service or joining the military or something like that. Um, and, you know, you you join and you have to get a special haircut and you have to wear special clothes and you only eat at certain times and you follow the words of the uh, authority figures, you know, to the letter and, and all these things. And that can be a great spiritual experience. It can also be really toxic. And mm. it's sort of it's sort of like it's related for sure to the, you know, this idea of a cult. And it's also I mean, if you think about like what's the difference between a cult and a kibbutz, like a, a, a profound, like a, a commune that like is functioning properly and a commune that is functioning, you know, extremely improperly, you know, sometimes maybe it's a fine line. And so that's kind of what I was thinking about by the end of the book, especially in the sort of the big uh, climactic bit where the, um, and when the, the, um, uh, what's her name? I can't remember her name, the, the mother figure. Um, uh, what, yeah, I don't. I'm not gonna remember any other names. Um, when it started she started with so, a K. Yeah, when she, um, you know, makes that comment about how you know she thought it was supposed to be safe and all this stuff. It's like, well, you know, you you should have known, like clearly. But at the same time, you can see how that lie works. You know, when a person is selling it to themselves. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. especially when power is involved, right? There's this toxic combination. This like intoxicating combination of of power and self-delusion that is like very recognizable in all kinds of settings, especially in these sort of cloistered, you know, you know, kind of like 
isolated environments, you know? Mm-hmm. One thing that I enjoyed with the book was at one point the the ship um, that is sort of the main viewpoint character like yells at her, yells at the grandmothers like Buddhist nonsense, like those sort of like, you know, like, yeah, oh, this bullshit right. ideology you have. And um, I found that very funny because I feel like in a, you know, most Western kind of perspective books like Buddhism is is never the like villain right like it's never the bad guy it's always like oh buddhism is the non-religious religion which is you know itself bullshit like that's not what buddhism is um and so i i really kind of like enjoyed that piece of it of like this sort of like almost like anger at this like ruling ideology as well as um yeah i mean i i guess just that um it, it, it was a nice kind of like note of like oh yeah this isn't you know this isn't Western sci-fi. I mean, it is in some ways and it isn't in other ways. Like it, it, it kind of early, I think in the pre-read I talked about how like you'll get sort of Julia, you actually brought this up, right? Like the difference between like firefly where it's like, Oh, they curse in Chinese. Like, yay. Good for you. Um, <laughs> versus like, you know, stuff where it's like, Oh no, this is like a culture that's been around for a long time. And like, you know, like, Buddhism has like a kind of awkward place in it where it's both like the ruling ideology and like has the stuff to offer and it's complicated. And like, you feel that a lot more when she, when the ship like yells that than you would, I feel like in a lot of kind of like maybe a more Western version of the same world. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that like, if this were written in a Western verse, you might have something like a Catholic monastery or mm-hmm. convent because that is the same kind of power structure where you have, again, someone who's young, who's committed themselves to a life separated from everyone they know and in within the power structure of a church who is very powerful. Um, yep. and it's like, okay, well what happens inside the convent is going to be closed to everybody else. So mm-hmm. it can, in, in a healthy situation, it's going to be good for everyone and they're going to thrive, but in an unhealthy situation, little things can become big things and small, small punishments can become murder by accident. Right. Right. It is always, this is kind of neither here nor there, but it is always really fascinating to me the ways in which like Buddhism and Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy as well, all kind of like landed on this very similar (laughs) style of like monasticism, which is very different than other religious monasticisms yet share a lot in common um like between each other and it's that's always sort of like interesting to me the way that these like two monastic traditions really evolved in parallel in such striking ways uh and that is part of it is like both of them are very much set up in this kind of system of like control and submission of like silence you know like silence as being like this core value within them um which you know like silence isn't always good (laughs) at the same time when silence means not speaking truth, like that can be a problem. Yeah. And it sort of the, the other big piece of this is that they clearly are using very shoddy materials and goods. So like Mm -hmm. they're using Mm -hmm. a ship that is damaged and not capable of protecting people. Um, They're using cut rate drugs that should not be used for everyone that should be tailored to one person and just giving them to everyone as if that is a one size fit all sort of situation, which it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, I think all of this, 
if we if we compare it to things happening in in the modern world that we live in, like it would be as though you're living in a convent that is then going to send you out in a uh, car or plane that is completely broken and likely to crash, like the brakes will fail or whatever. And Mm -hmm. giving you medicine without a doctor prescribing it. Right. So like that's, that's a really big problem. And I think a lot of that comes back to the money thing. Like the, mm-hmm. the people in power want to be able to preserve their means of income, which they're telling themselves is so that they can protect the whole community because they're trying to take these people in and give them a better life than they might have elsewhere. If it works, great. But if it doesn't work, mm. right. Yeah. yeah. And I guess suppose that was some of the interesting piece of it though, was like, it was unclear to me to what degree the like matriarch of the sisterhood was like, she had power within the organization, but to what degree, like she and the entire organization are just, you know, relatively powerless within this society. Right. And I think that's yeah. where the sort of like union, you know, it's not just a religious sect. It's also like a workers collective. Yeah. Um, kind of comes into it. And it's like they all work and like do their best. And like, you know, probably in some ways, like they are better off working in a collective than not, right? Like they are better off like pulling through labor and like having a society that does look after them. But at the end of the day, like they're still the underclass and the rest of society isn't going to let them leave that underclass. Yeah. And I think that the examinations of class and the ways that, society stratifies in this are really interesting because what we see is that the ships are primarily supposed to be military ships. And when they choose to make their living elsewhere, that is very much Mm -hmm. looked down upon. So the shadow's child, who is the main character is sort of living this half life where she's reduced to brewing tea, which is basically drugs for humans. Mm -hmm. And that she's doing this and she can't be, she can't afford to be picky about who her customers are. She kind of has to take everything. She's living in a sort of low rent place that she can't even really afford, but it's the only place that would take a ship. So she has to make the money to scrape that rent together. And the reason is because she used to be a military ship, but then she was traumatized during war and opted out of the military. And it's like, okay, well you've, you've lost your class status then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going from like a warrior class to a merchant class, which is like inherently both like lower class, but also like you don't have the, you know, like merchant upbringing and the sort of like connections there to actually make it go of it easily. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I, another thing that I think about with regard to the sisterhood is uh, like a political organization of low caste people in India, for example, um, mm-hmm. or like, like, a some sort of union of untouchables of which there, you know, are many real ex- actually existing examples. Um, and the, the possibility that like a, you know, a local charismatic leader could organize this sort of, you know, downtrodden group and simultaneously help them and endanger them in new ways, right. you know, that, and yeah. that's, you can find examples of that all over the world, but especially in developing countries well not just in i mean everywhere i mean it's, I, it's yeah a, i mean it's easy we want to talk about something yeah. that's really like horrifying and right now look at all of our essential workers in places like amazon warehouses 
and right. grocery stores and all of those places who are at this time forced to do work because that's how they make a living and they, they can't not, but also at the mercy of their big corporate employers over whether they have adequate distancing and personal protective equipment and sick pay and anything else. So mm-hmm. you get like mm-hmm. Instagram or Instagram, Instacart workers striking because they're not getting hazard pay. They're not getting protective equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And it is really like genuinely life threatening for, for those people. Absolutely. But also if they don't have the protection of the corporate entity who is giving them a place to work, their lives are measurably worse in different ways. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a, it's not an easy fix. I think it's, there's not a cut and dried answer. Right. Well, and, you know, just like in this world where we have these families who have these kind of vested interests, we also, you know, in our real world have politicians who don't believe in giving like, you know, rent pauses to people because then like, oh, well, then they won't want to work as 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 drivers and as grocery store workers. And it's like, yes, that's, you know, that's the world we live in is the one where, you know. Including our, you know, I live in a democratic state and our democratic governor doesn't want to do that or give money away for these same reasons, right? Like, yeah. you know, it, it's not like, a, oh, the GOP is so bad. It's like there's a lot of folks on all sides of the aisle who like believe that we need a system based around like the only way to live is to work in order for the system to like sustain itself in any way. And that, you know, puts a really undue burden on people who are disadvantaged within that system um, to both be essential and also to be, you know, essential as a class and inessential as individuals. Yeah. This was, this was all stuff, you know, I mean, it's this sort of direction of thinking that actually was what originally bothered me a little bit about the way that the sisterhood is portrayed because same, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's common to, to uh, assume somehow that organizations, like a lot of cultural products do this, and even people who perhaps would normally find themselves sympathetic to a union or a union-like organization, some sort of solidarity organization, um, can tend also to like portray these things as dangerous in some way, as like, or mm-hmm. like as corrupted in some way, or as somehow, you know, not actually out for the interests of their members. And right. that's a trope that, you see a lot of, um, especially mm-hmm. in a time when media is super corporate, and <laughs> like right. every news organization is owned by some kind of giant corporation that's, you know, and the important decisions at the top levels are all made by really wealthy people. And, um, right. Well, in, and how many left-wing media companies have been like pro-union for everyone else and then their workers start to unionize and all of a sudden it's like, oh, and, well, like our workers don't need a union. Right. Yeah, well, nobody here should. That's not in the family spirit. Um, so if you're right. organized, you're going to be fired. But for other reasons, exactly. we'll make up other reasons. Our workers don't need a union. We already look after them so well. <laughs> yes. Right. But I, I read it differently than as a union situation. I read it more as like the corporate situation. Um, oh, so interesting. that like more that grandmother, I was her name Q it's like K H U E, but I don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah. I have no idea. Um, so I felt like she was more like the, the CEO of domestic worker corp. <laughs> um, oh. so like if you think of this as for instance, Mary maids, a cleaning company and all of those people are her workers, they also get f- 
free room and board for working for her. And then they have to go clean houses to the standard of Mary Maids. And also, like, mm. she's solely responsible for their welfare. Then yeah. it becomes very important for her as someone who doesn't have necessarily a ton of, of money and power within the society at large to make sure that everyone within her company is actually performing exactly as she wants them to. Mm-hmm. So then you mm-hmm. have to control them, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and like I said, I, I by the time I got to the end of it, I sort of thought of it more as a as a monastic analog uh, than as yeah. a as a than as a union analog. Just because, I mean, for one thing, in, in Asia, um, monasteries are often involved in business. Um, they often yeah. have um, large mm-hmm. local businesses associated with them. And this right. this well, Europe too. I mean, how many monasteries have breweries yeah, and well, stuff like very that? Very true. Yeah. But no, keep going, Matt. Sorry, sorry. Oh, no. I mean, it's it's I think this is just like a situation that I recognize. I mean, you know, a few years ago I was in Myanmar and when I was there, I saw a lot of posters for this one particular. um, I don't know what you'd call him. I guess he's sort of like a preacher, you know, imagine a um, uh, imagine like a like a uh, Billy Graham type or Billy Graham type. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. who somebody, but, but he's a Buddhist and he is, you know, uh, somehow or other, there is an organization that sort of ordains him, but like really he runs his own organization and Mm -hmm, his authority mm -hmm. comes from the fact that he is famous and people sort of think that he has moral authority. And this one particular guy was, you know, he was the head of a, of, of like a subsect of Buddhism that is not known. I mean, people associate with Myanmar with the Rohingya crisis. This had nothing to do with that. That is a whole, I'm sure this guy had opinions on that, that I probably wouldn't like, but, but the, the, <laughs> the stuff that I saw had nothing to do with that. It was all in right. a different part of the country. And, you know, so what he was doing was he was, there was a, it was, this was right around a particular festival, um, which is called Tingan. Uh, and it's like, you know, uh, it's around the time of the Buddha's birthday, which is a major, mm-hmm. you know, major Buddhist event. And he, you know, at that time of year, he was soliciting donations for like no specific purpose. He was just like, you should donate to me because it's the Buddha's birthday. And he had these posters all over Yangon. Right. And give and, Donna uh, <laughs> because Donna itself is a good. And like, I like, I remember learning that the, the, the word on the street was that this guy was like insanely corrupt (laughs) and, you know, and And, uh, you know, and he had, he had all these young people who would like, so what a, a thing that happens in Southeast Asia is that people will at a certain age will, especially in Thailand and Myanmar, people will, um, like when they get to a certain age, they join a monastery for a year or two. And yeah, that's like yeah. a thing that all young people do or like a huge percentage of young people do. And then they leave and do whatever else in their life. But some stay. But, you know, so there's, there's this sort of high turnover, you know, cohort after cohort of very young people joining these like religious organizations and which organization they join depends on all kinds of stuff. But these organizations are not all created equal and some of them are really corrupt (laughs) and they have their fingers in lots of businesses. They have their fingers in construction or, you know, they have some affiliation with like some chain of businesses in a particular city or whatever. Right. And it reminded me of that. I mean, it's just very, it felt to me like exactly like that. Yeah. No. And so this has been very helpful because when I first read this book, I definitely kind of had this kind of the same feeling of you, Matt, of the like, is this this sort of like weird anti 
union thing that can often even like, you know, people who don't realize that's what they're writing can kind of be writing, but thinking of it more as this idea of like, kind of like a corrupt monastery and like ultimately like it's a business, not a union. Like it uses the language of unions of, Oh, we're workers who like work together, but ultimately like there's one person who owns it and like owns it and whatever ownership means in this world, which is like different than our world. Um, cause it's not a capitalist society, but still like, you know, who like runs it and like, manages it and manages like the lives of the people within it and that's a that's a very it helps kind of like reframe it in a way that like makes the whole thing like make a lot of sense and actually make almost more sense of like oh this is kind of what's being critiqued here as opposed to just a you know like you know oh yes unions are corrupt too because power (laughs) is always corrupting which is like you know I mean, I think we had the same discussion around Stanley Chan's Waste Tide, where there's the same sense of like, well, it's not that he's saying that like unions are corrupting. It's that there's this element of like, there is no union and there is no structure and people coming into that to try to build structure, like even with good intentions can do so in like bad ways. And it's kind of a different, you know, sort of like push and pull there than in our society. And I guess it's another Mm -hmm. thing that's useful to remember that like, this isn't about modern American society. It's not about a world where there are like, you know, very weak unions unions but there are unions and it's a fully capitalist society it's like more of a you know i mean the sense i got is that it's ultimately kind of feudalist at least in a way that there are like these strong families that have like family power that then somehow trickles down to other things although it's not entirely clear i'm sure her other like stories in this universe make it more clear but it's not it's not the most important part yeah but that was definitely the sense i got i i wanted to i want to read more of the stories set in this universe now mm-hmm. but um mm-hmm. but totally yeah I, I definitely got the sense that the family power was the big thing if you were from one of the important families then you had that and that kind of you see it scattered throughout because there's a point where the ship mm-hmm. the shadow's child wants to talk to the person who's responsible for collecting her rent and ask her for a favor to look into information and she says she needs information. And then she immediately says, it's not from this specific family. And that other person relaxes because it's like, oh, I can't go against the people that right. I'm beholden to. But if you want inquiries about some other family's business, like yep. that might be OK. <laughs> right. You know, I, I will say just a little quick aside. Um, Elliot de Bodard actually released her um a collection of stories set in this universe for free, like because we're all in quarantine and not doing anything. She released it all for free on her Patreon. You don't have to be a subscriber. So I'll, I'll, I'll link to that in our show notes and everything. But it is, if you liked this book and you want more stories set in this universe, there's like 15, there's like a, over a dozen in, in this collection. She just released for anyone. That's read, really exciting. Cool. That is yeah, cool. It's very, it. very cool. I mean, it's ebook only and everything, but you know, it's, they're free. I have the PDF on my phone now, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading more as well. But yeah, I think that that's a really good, like there's this, you know, clearly this element of, you know, and it's something I really liked about this story is I feel like often in sort of Western science fiction, especially I think I associate this with like the sixties and seventies kind of like, you know, science fiction, which I really like a lot of that stuff, but you know, you'll have this stuff where it's like, Oh yeah, it's empires in space. <laughs> But it kind of like it's still ultimately a pretty like 50s, 60s, 70s version of American society. It's like there's still capitalism and there's still kind of like 
you know, like it's more like cowboys in space, even if it's empires in a real, in a way. And like this very much had a feel of like empires in space, right? Of like, it's a very different kind of society where like power lines are drawn very differently. And like, you know, the way you trade power is not just through money. Like it all, all of that works very differently. And I might not fully understand all of it, but also like, it feels like it's, there's something to understand there, which I really liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah, it sort of. Uh, I've been watching Ghost Bride on Netflix, which is. Uh, I'm not sure which country it's from, but it's. I think a, it's Chinese. I, I it's in Chinese, but I'm not sure it is a Chinese production. Um, but it's a great, it's a great little sort of romantic comedy drama horror mashup thing, where. It's set in 1880s and I can't remember where it's set. And I feel like that might actually also tell me about who made it. (laughs) Um, But that has large, like sweeping family power dynamics in the same way that this does. And Mm -hmm. even though the stories are very different, it put me in mind of it just in this, the way the world works, the way power works. Cool. Do you recommend it? Oh yeah. It Ghost Bride is super fun. I've been watching it actually with some of the Skiffy and Fanti folks on like on Sundays we do a Netflix party. So next Sunday we get to do the the final episode, which I'm very excited to watch. Ooh. But it's been nice. It's been super fun. I I highly recommend it. Uh it's it's both sort of like dramatic and also funny and there's like very light horror so i'm not a big horror person but it's not something that's so scary that i can't sleep after it or anything like that it does have scary ghosts but they're you know it's always it's always tempered with the lighter touch nice so i just looked it up and it's malaysian actually even though it's yeah okay okay yeah that's that's it malaysian i was like i don't think it's actually mainland china but i don't know who made it cool <laughs> yeah that does sound fun I'll, I'll i'll put that on the queue of you know netflix things that i will pick up and look at for 15 minutes and then get stressed out and like go take a walk instead <laughs> <laughs> which seems to be how i you know do most of my media consumption these days <laughs> if i take a walk cool. i mean just pace around my apartment <laughs> but yeah like ghost bride has uh, it has the same kinds of different looks at different levels of society so you have people Mm. who are in the main wealthy family who is very powerful but then you have also people in the merchant class and people in the working class who are servants or working in sort of like lower income jobs not in the service of the families Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you kind of can see how all of them interact with each other and how those power dynamics play out so it's it's fun it's good yeah, there was a cool. line, I forget exactly the line in the in the Team Master and the Detective when um the ship first gets to the sisterhood. Something about like, you know, oh, they're poor, but they have like these nice old things. And it's this sense of like, you know, kind of like uh, nobility is not the word that they use, but kind of like, you know, like like high in power in some ways, even while like poor in monetary terms. And that does feel like this thing that you, you know, you get a lot less in American society that is a lot easier to get in these like kind of like older, more family power based societies. Yeah. Specifically, I feel like the thing that was described in that was that there were 
artifacts that would be interesting to scholars, but they wouldn't pay very much money for them. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think it was even <laughs> like there was like a there was like a game board of some sort that they had like displayed and it's like somewhat an ostentatious display to have this like old antique thing but also in other ways like not actually worth anything uh, yeah. outside of it being an ostentatious display of like rarity. Uh, which which I liked a lot. I like that kind of thought of like, oh yeah, there are things that you know are rare but not worth money. Like I feel like that's something that we, you know, again just in terms of like how it is a very different kind of society like made it feel very lived in and real um in a way that i really appreciated like that's not something i would write like i wouldn't think to write that right like in my head like you know oh yeah rare means people spend money for it <laughs> right like econ 101 is what happens in my brain even if that's not actually what happens in everyone's uh, so can I ask you guys what you thought about some world building stuff? Cause I, yeah, I really love a lot of that. We've already started to talk about it obviously, but like, what about the, um, the, the drugs, the sort of medicine mm -hmm. drug, you know, nexus that's going on there. What'd you think of that? Mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting and I felt like there was a lot more to explore that we only barely scratched the surface with what we saw in this story. Um, but like the ship could brew the tea for for people and, and calibrate it to them individually. And the idea that you had to have it in order to survive deep space, like deep space would literally break you if you didn't have drugs, made mm -hmm. it really interesting because it's like, okay, well, you see why there's an absolute need for it, but then you can see how it can be abused. And I thought it was also really interesting how Lung Chow, the main human character, the detective, has like we first see her through the ship's eyes and the ship is like, oh, it's a drug addict. Great. Like she's full of drugs. I can analyze everything about her and she's she's full of drugs and she wants me to give her more drugs. And I have to be a drug dealer because I don't have money and mm -hmm. I don't want it, which is a really interesting sort of position to be in, I thought. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I would even consider it analogous to if I were trying to put it in modern day stuff. Like, like it's almost like she's looking for black market Adderall and, and the person right. who has the power to give it to her is like, I don't think you're ADHD and you shouldn't be taking Adderall. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think, go ahead, Matt. No, go ahead. Okay. Sorry. There's a bit of delay on my end. My internet connection's really shitty today. Um, there, there is this element of like her being a drug dealer, I think is a really like apt kind of metaphor for what she is, even while it's like kind of put in these forms of like the tea ceremony and this idea of tea as like, you know, something that I, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't drink coffee. I drink tea every day. Like I associate tea very like fondly as this thing that I have a lot of like good memories around. And so to kind of like then associate that with this, like, well, it's both necessary as well as like ripe for abuse and even beyond tea itself, like this, you know, Long Chow has like is a drug addict, right? Like at yeah. the end, she even like just straight up says like, oh no, this is just because I like my drugs, right? Like this is just who I am and I will, I will continue to be doing drugs anytime you meet me. And there's this sort of sense of like... I really, I really liked that, this kind of feeling of like, on the one hand, these drugs are like, a, you know, I mean, right, like, 
the military like the modern American military also like uses drugs like it's fighter pilots often like you know get they don't use Adderall usually it's often Provigil or other sort of like prohistamine drugs to help them like stay awake and alert um you know but it's like it's like you know there's these places where you can do that where you can like have these drugs that are like used to like you know for perform performance enhancing and then like other people using the same or similar drugs is like illegal and like not allowed right and the kind of like both the legal and the moral weight of like any particular use of drug like doesn't actually like while we tend to legislate it in terms of like well this particular drug is illegal and this drug is not like the reality is a lot more slippery than that um and so there was something really interesting about this world in which like you know in some ways like she's the best drug dealer because she has not she's not just a person who like looks at you and talks to you and then figures out like she uses her like her AI mind and her probes to look at your very, like the nano scale of your brain and figure out exactly what drug is perfect for you. Um, but that's not actually like one, it's always going to be a low class position. And two, like that's not exactly what people are looking for with this. There's something like more to it that she can't offer. It felt like. Mm, interesting. Like what? I'm not sure exactly. I just got this sense of like, you know, it's like given that she's like, you know, like in a, in a kind of purely scientifically minded way, right? Like she can build better teas than anyone else can just cause she has these like abilities that like humans who do this do not. Um, but at the same time, like she still kind of like works on the edges because she is, you know, not actually designed for that society, right? Like she, she's designed to be a military person. And so we'll never be able to get the same, like customer success as someone who has spent their whole life being a tea master potentially. Oh, interesting. I, I, I read it more like she doesn't have the social position to succeed rather than that. She, that, that's what I mean. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. But, but the, she doesn't have the social position because she is, yeah, right. you know, a ship and not a person, not yeah. because she's not good at it. Yeah, no, totally. Well, and I even think, if she was a yeah, person, even if she was a person, it would depend on, where she came from and who her parents were and all mm -hmm. of that. So like the fact that she is a ship, that's, that's another interesting thing to get into is like, who are these ships and where do they come from? Mm -hmm. But we can, yeah. so we can table that for now. But I, <laughs> I, I feel like even if she had been human, it's unclear to me that she would be able to be a like wealthy merchant given who she is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. One thing that was interesting to me about the the drugs was the personalized aspect of it. And it it sort of, mm. I mean, partly because this is what I know, um, not necessarily because that's what, you know, is so much in the book, but it put me in mind of traditional Chinese medicine. And, um, you know, there's like, this is also something you were kind of alluding to, Adrian, I think, you know, the the social system in which drug use takes place um, you know, can work in a lot of different ways. I mean, mm -hmm. we, you know, as people who grew up in like the United States have a set of expectations that are, you know, constructed around a very particular social reality, um, where right. drugs are carefully legislated and categorized and commercialized at a mass scale and, um, criminalized at a mass scale. And that's not the way 
um, medicine worked in a lot of places and times and, or, or, you know, it's not the way it works everywhere today either. Um, there's a, a, like one other sort of model of it is this highly personalized model where, you know, Mm -hmm. it is assumed that there's nothing mass marketable about this. This is profoundly and fundamentally something that has to be tailored to a particular neurochemist neurochemical like setup and so like th- their whole system in this in this universe is based around that idea and like so you're it's just like impossible for there to be a pharmacy where you go in and you buy it you know like this mass-produced um right bottle like brand of, name yeah right and so like you know the fact that there has to be a tea master is um, part of this, you know, broader social conception of like what it is for, like what medicine is and how medicine works, how drugs mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's really, it's cool to like bring that in. It's cool to sort of have this different conception of of that system. Um, yeah, I, I feel like that's definitely interesting. And also I kind of wonder if in the future people looking back at this time will just feel like everything we did was a very much like hitting everything with a very blunt tool because <laughs> yeah. you're you're not preparing things depending on each individual person's makeup you're just saying and especially like in the US it's it's even worse than in some other places because it's not even just that we're using like mass produced drugs that we apply in situations, but like because of the way insurance works, you have to go to a doctor. And even if they think that you should probably have this different mass produced drug first, they might have to try three others Mm -hmm. and prove that they don't work Mm -hmm. so that you are then eligible to get the one that they think does, which is Mm -hmm. like really kind of messed up. (laughs) And also, very much completely the opposite of someone is looking at your physical makeup and looking at all the things going on in your body and choosing the perfect thing that they think will work to fit you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is a really interesting. So I, um, like recently started taking antidepressants and like the process for getting antidepressants is really like interesting because, you know, I have a psychiatrist who I even like continue to see like once a month to as a part of it. And like, you know, that is really nice. Like I'm very privileged in that a lot of people like don't even ever see a psychiatrist and might even see like a GP who prescribes them something. And then that's the one interaction they ever have about it. Um, right. And so it's like, there's all, there's already these sort of like different ways that you can be prescribed these like drugs that are designed to change your brain chemistry and designed to change the way your brain works and the way your like mind works, the way you think. Um, but even then, like, you know, like talking to the psychiatrist, you know, we sort of like went through the general classes of drugs. Right. And there's like SSRIs versus MAOIs versus like the new like SNRIs. And, you know, there's all these different types of drugs that like work differently in these sort of like broad classes. But then there's the specific drugs within each class. And some of it is just like 
we don't really know how these drugs work or like why one SSRI will work for one person and a different SSRI will work for a different person. So even like going through that process, you know, it feels like in some ways it's like we're talking about, oh yes, well, you know, it's like we have these blunt force hammers and that's all we can apply for everyone. I think, I think that's very true to a degree. Another way of looking at it is like, actually we're really good at personalizing all these different drugs, but we're really bad at matching the personalized drug to the person. So like for most people, when they're going through the process of finding an antidepressant that works for them, it is this kind of trial and error of like, is this the one that's been personalized for me? Is this the one that's been personalized? Is this the one that's been personalized for me? And, you know, I was very lucky to land on that really early on and not have to do a bunch of experimenting. I know other people who have, you know, even experimented within a class and then had to be like, well, this class doesn't work and let's see, you know, maybe I need to try the SNRIs instead of the SSRIs. And like, that's a really, I don't know. That's a really tough place to be in, but also it does have this kind of, it's, you know, it's in some ways it's like a different way of approaching you know, it's like, it's still really personalized. It's still like, there's a whole bunch of different drugs that does this thing, which is like, make you less depressed. Right. Right. It's just like, which one's going to work for you? Like, let's find out. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that's part of what I'm talking about with like the blunt instrument thing is that in the future, if we do come up with ways to actually understand how they work and why they work for different people and develop ways to make things that are actually like, the tea that a tea master would make that is specifically designed Mm -hmm. to work with the biology of the person. If you actually get to that point and you look back at this, you're just like, wow, what a nightmare. Like I wouldn't want to have to travel back in time to then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's also, I mean, it has to do also with the impersonalization of so many people's experience. You know, they, you know, they go the, 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 the majority of people who are going just to see the GP, right. Yeah. Right. If that, you know, or they're yep. just like prescribing themselves something out of the, off the, off the shelf in the pharmacy. Right. right. And then that almost is like the most common experience. Like you're some person and you feel some sort of pain and you don't have the ability or the time or the money or the whatever to go to a doctor. And so you go to the pharmacy and you, or the supermarket or the bodega or whatever, and you, and you mm-hmm. sort of look through the things and you like have no idea really like what's going on, but you've like seen some sort of random collection of marketing material over the course of your life that relates to like one or more of these products. And so based on that and like whatever's going on in your head and whatever advice you get, you just like pick one and take it, you know? Yeah. Well, or you, you know, smoke weed or drink alcohol, right? Like, or you, you know, like (laughs) self-medicate in those ways, which I probably, you know, which I know is really common, Um, you know. Not that I have any experience with those, um, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, no. And that's part of my point is that like, I feel like in a lot of ways I have like the best possible experience of this thing. And it's, you know, I mean, it's like not bad because like any of the people involved in my care are doing a bad job. It's just bad because like all we have yeah. are these kind of like hammers, like that's the best yeah. we can do right now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's also, you know, a really interesting thing, the difference between like a T and for instance, even like figuring out which SSRI works for you or figuring out which cancer medicine or like whatever the medicine is that works for you is that a lot of the way that we think about, you know, prescription drugs in America is these drugs are sort of like, like I, I take an SSRI and it is like one specific molecule, 
right? And like someone else takes a different SSRI and that's a different specific molecule. And the idea of like, well, we have these blends of things that like work on this aspect of your personality in this way and this aspect of your personality in this other way. And like, you know, it's not just that like, this is the right molecule for you, but actually you need like 10% of this molecule and 20% of this molecule. And we should also put some like, you know, antipsychotics in there for you. But like this other person might have everything the same, but with like a, you know, actually an upper in there because they have trouble. You're right. Like there's all these different potential formulations of that stuff that, you know, again, the best we get to is like prescribing a bunch of, specific drugs to someone and trying to find kind of like a, you know, a, a general purpose that kind of works. But ultimately like the, you know, the smallest dose of most SSRIs you can get is five milligrams and maybe you need less than that. And like, well, then you're kind of SOL. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the beautiful things about science fiction, of course, is that what we're getting on some level is uh, a fantastical imaginary version of Mm -hmm. a solution to a real world problem. That could mm-hmm. exist. Yeah. Know? And I think that that's one of the things that science fiction has done well over the, the course of time and is something that people still want it to do is come up with the creative ideas for how things could work that then we can apply our actual real world skills to making work like Star Trek mm-hmm. with its vocoders that then become the communicators then become our, our smartphones that we have <laughs> and we carry around and we can do everything with them. Um, yep. but like that including was watching a, Star Trek. Yeah. But that was a totally <laughs> distant dream back when that series started, it seemed impossible and it's totally possible and we can do it. And it, would we have thought of doing it without having the idea that we could, that it would, that mm-hmm. that was a thing to even try for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like yeah, seeing think- this, I'm like, wow, could we have, could we have amazing technology that would actually tell us what everything we needed to work well and function biologically would be? And mm-hmm. if we can, like, how do we get there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sign combined, me up. <laughs> combined with a social, yeah. Combined with a social infrastructure that gives you this personalized attention and a sort of like consigliere yeah. figure to like help guide you through the process of figuring out the right thing. And right. Yeah. So I feel like this is a good segue to talk about those ships and who they are mm, yeah, and let's how do they exist. So yeah. um, it's, a, it's never like explicitly explained, but it's sort of implied and bits and pieces are given to you that these are they're born human and somehow yeah. become ships and they, they then leave, live for hundreds of years as ships, but they are seeded from human people. So each of these people is meta human. They're better. They're, they're bigger than human, mm-hmm. but also still very much an individual because the shadow's child remembers at one point her childhood sitting in her mother's lap watching fireworks. And then, you know, of course she sort of moves on from that and is like, okay, I'm a ship and I'm doing my thing. But I think having that blend of sort of the, the bigger processing power of, of AI and computing and stuff along with the actual human makes it possible for them to give you a personal experience that might be impossible otherwise. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was something with reading the book that I, I, you know, at first I was kind of like, why does she need an apartment? Why does she, you know, why does, like, why is she, you know, drinking her own tea, like having her avatar do this thing, right? And it's like, as I got to that point, you know, I think in the pre-read you asked about her gender and I was like, oh, it's, you know, she's female and it's actually kind of important. And it is because it's like at one point she was a human with a human body. Right. Yeah. And like at one and she has this kind of human psyche. And it's like that sort of explains why she also has these like human quirks and still kind of even while she knows that she's this like she's actually this giant, you know, piece of metal that like contains humans within her like off, you know, orbiting this planet, like the way she thinks about herself as like someone sitting in a office working. Yeah. Well, and also she's she's capable of running lots of processes, but she's also human and able to be distracted and think about things that she shouldn't be thinking about while she's doing work. Mm-hmm. So like there are parts where she's talking to one person, but running a bunch of searches on something that she really wants to know and is distracted while talking to them. And it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that's a very like who hasn't done that? Who hasn't multitasked (laughs) and been talking to one person while actually like checking your texts or whatever? Yeah, yeah, that, that that tone of voice you start hearing from your partner sometime. They're like, uh huh, uh huh. It's like you toned out like exactly. five sentences ago. <laughs> what what Instagram yeah. post are you actually reading instead of listening to me? <laughs> you know, and like obviously yeah. I've done that back to them too. So, <laughs> but that also makes that also makes the ships need to be recognized as people, and the society yeah. needs to treat them as individual humans even though they are, they're not exactly human anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they need that society the same way that every human needs society and they need friendship and they need infrastructure that supports them and they need to feel part of a social network. Mm-hmm. And they have their own parallel social network, which I thought was awesome. They have their own yeah. like ship society yeah. that exists along with and integrated into the rest of society. Um, mm-hmm. I love the ship society a lot. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was I, really do, cool. I do too. Yeah, the ship society reminded me actually of um, the way that a uh, sort of ethnically distinct or culturally distinct um, group uh, can exist, you know, playing a particular social role inside of a right. larger society. So I, I thought of, for example, the Hakka people in southern China who, for, you know, like, have often, you know, I mean, like rightly and wrongly, have often been associated with um, like seaborne mercantile trade. Um, and, you know, the profits of that trade, you know, came back to their ancestral villages in like Fujian province and like funded the construction of these gigantic sort of circular castle type buildings where the whole clan had their like, you know, clan base. Mm-hmm. Um, but meanwhile, like they're they're just like situated within this much larger social world that treats them as somewhat othered in some some ways othered and in other ways not othered you know integrated but not integrated kind of mm-hmm. basically it's complicated <laughs> yeah right i mean or like jewish people in medieval europe mm-hmm. right who like of are course. able to do certain things with money that christians can't do and so have a specific like place in society yeah. because of well, that yeah and also like honestly this is a really interesting parallel there was a a lot of jewish doctors in spain so like you would have mm-hmm. doctors who were, they would come and they would treat people. They were 
they were necessary and they were respected because they were doctors and they could actually treat your illnesses, but they were also Jewish and therefore outcasts. So it was like a very precarious line. And I feel like that is sort of an interesting parallel to these ships who are no longer military ship, but also can deal drugs, but also Mm -hmm. like that's necessary and we respect it, but also we don't really want to give you any insider status. Right. Right. And it's like the way that they're sort of discriminated against is a lot more subtle than like, Oh, we don't like your kind around here kind of thing going on. Right. It's much more, it's like, Oh, like you have a certain place in society and you know, that place kind of sucks. And also there's no other place for you. Yeah. Right. And like that, that's kind of the way it works. It's not in any sort of like, you know, hostility by anyone individually but rather the way society society as a whole views you and lets you what 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 i guess like the possibility space for your actions even are and like the the thing that's mentioned to the shadow's child on a couple of occasions is that she would be doing better if she could just suck it up and transport humans from place to place and she doesn't want to do it because of what happened when she was in the war Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. I, I, I just to get back to the ship stuff for a second, I, I love one of the things I loved about the way the ships work, uh, you know, relates to the fact that they're all kind of one person. And it's that like when a ship is one person instead of some sort of like superhuman entity or multiple entity conglomeration, it becomes much more of a direct literalization of a person's mind to think about mm-hmm. like the structure of the ship. Yeah. And like I especially love how there's a core, right? There's this core, which is like, which like she can like go to, you know, (laughs) (laughs) which I I just think is great. Like the heart. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's actually, it's funny because it's like, I, like we, I, I really liked the way that she is able to be distracted and she is able, she, that she has a personality that is sort of like one personality. It felt very like, you know. Like I had said, there's something Banksian about these ships. And even though there's like, you know, the Banksian minds are not created from humans and are, are, are their own kind of thing. The way in which it feels like, you know, Banksian specifically, as opposed to something like, uh, 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 what's her name? The, the, the woman who wrote the Raven Tower. Um, and Lucky. And Lucky. Right. Right. It, it is. It's this ways in which like they're kind of like the each ship is like personal and like really different from each other and like has their own wants and desires and personalities. And like, you know, some are like really anxious and some are really kind of irreverent. And like, you know, you don't know what you're going to get until you get one and you talk to them. And like, you know, there's something about that that feels very. um, I know, That again, kind of actually like include like when i think of like the ways in which the story is cozy like the fact that like ships while even while they're these giant unknowable like ai things are also kind of like jerks <laughs> it's like that's that's like one of the ways right like i think of some of the, my mm-hmm. favorite banks story like i love the culture stories and some of my favorite ones are the ones where you have like a ship who's like kind of a prick <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and the the uh, and the like the intership like BBS that he often yep. does, yeah. Um, is oh, all, I love that, that. that. You know, I love that, and that I got d- similar stuff from the Ship Society right. in this book because, I mean, they have, you know, among the re- sorts of relationships that they have are um, every type of human relationship. And but what's yeah. cool is there's one thing that you see in in this book 
team in team master executive is something you don't really at least none, none of the bank's books i've read is a sort of mentor mentee relationship yeah totally ships, which i loved mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah you know the ships here have like familial relations in a way that is like unique i think like, i haven't seen that before at least myself yeah i really, really like that it. and so one of the things that I brought up in the pre-read was that some people had compared this favorably to um, The Ship Who Sang by Anne McCaffrey, and which was a, mm-hmm. a, a book that I read when I was a child and loved and have been afraid to reread ever since because I can tell it's got problems. <laughs> and I just sort of like don't really want to have to be <laughs> yep, <laughs> facing classic. them. Yep. <laughs> and I think that the interesting thing about this is that The, the Ship Who Sang very much has like a person who is the core of the ship was a, was a human, but was disabled. So the only way that they can be functional is to become a ship. And then they fall in love with their captain and like they get together. I'm spoiling the ship who's saying there's more to it, but like, that's the gist of it. But also like, it's very old and I don't know that I can honestly recommend it. So, you know, (laughs) Um, but this ship had much more going on than just, basically having one captain that she interacted with and therefore because of that was like oh i guess we're in love now (laughs) because (laughs) like my body didn't work so the only way i can exist is by being a ship but i have a personality and i like singing and now i'm gonna fall in love with my captain um this ship had much there's a lot of yikes in there there's a lot of yikes there (laughs) like that like i said i'm afraid to reread it but this is to the best of my memory what happens and i really liked it as a kid (laughs) um but this ship has so much more uh interaction with other people like her and agency Mm. and autonomy and can make the decisions for herself so even if she's not making the best situational decisions for her like financial livelihood for instance, she's not taking passengers, which could make her more money. She is able to say, like, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to. And I will exist some other way. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that it kind of reminded me of, if we want to do comp titles, which is totally different in some ways, but has a similar feel, is uh, the Murder Bot series by Martha Wells. I don't know if you mm-hmm. have oh, yeah. read any of yeah. those. But uh, I still yeah, have it. But I, I've heard I like good those things. a lot. They're they're super fun, yeah, like cozy reads, and they also have like this sort of like bigger than human character who has the the vast processing power, but also has a very human personality. Mm-hmm. Soaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think uh, unless you have any, like, we could move on to like final thoughts. Yeah, sure. At this point, if you want to, unless there's like any other big sort of like thematic things. Oh that we well, didn't hit the, on. I guess the other thing that I would say is I really love the um, the way that this very much is sort of an homage to the Sherlock Holmes dynamic. Because oh yeah, we didn't talk. We should talk we, about that. We didn't talk it. about this, and it was a big feature of the pre-read where we talked so much about what makes a home story. And like now that I've read this, like absolutely one hundred percent, this is not just detective fiction. This is a home right. story. Right. Right. Yeah. No. So what? So what do you like? What? Why? Why specifically? What is it in there that makes it a home story for you? So um, the character of Long Chow is sort of um, a bit inscrutable because she's. She sort of appears out of nowhere and she's drugged up to her eyeballs and she's like, (laughs) I need you to make me more drugs so that I can investigate a crime that like I don't actually have a personal stake in. Right. Just because I think it's interesting and I'm going to coldly analyze it and not actually seem emotional at all. 
and also want your drugs. And then like the ship is sort of in that more sympathetic Watson character where she doesn't always understand what Long Chao is getting at and Long Chao refuses to explain anything. And it's just like, well, it's a simple deduction. <laughs> so like mm-hmm. you should yeah, be you, able to figure it out. It. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and also she's like, I don't like that you're a drug seeker, but then is also sort of like the pusher in the being, situation, <laughs> not just the pusher in the situation, but also like being concerned about her medical health and being Mm -hmm. slowly sort of like oh maybe there is you know maybe there's more to her that i should be sympathetic to even if i don't Mm -hmm. necessarily want it so that by the end they're actually like friends and the the very end of this i think one of the things that makes this story so sort of nice to read is that it ends with this sort of like oh we solved this mystery and now also we have decided to officially embark upon a friendship Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm which is it's nice because they both have their issues like the ship clearly has severe PTSD and the human clearly has drug addiction problems and other emotional problems that she's not willing to discuss. Mm-hmm. And they kind of both yeah. need each other and complement each other in ways that can make for a really nice friendship. Because they're mm-hmm. both kind of not taking each other's shit. Right. Both of them, both of them like have, especially by the end, like understanding for each other while also having relatively like little patience for each other, which kind of like works in this type (laughs) of relationship. (laughs) Yeah. Like you don't want someone to just enable you unchecked. You want someone who will actually call you out and tell you like, hey, you need to do better. Right, right. So I will say the one thing about this book that didn't work 100% for me was how quickly they turned friends at the very end. Like, cause it did kind of feel like that was like, oh, this thing of, and maybe it wasn't even that they turned friends. It was the sort of like the kind of final turn against each other before they can be friends mm-hmm. felt a little bit like rushed in the sense of like oh she was this teacher and she like oh she like kidnapped and like you know made this poor young woman a slave and then like you know 10 pages later it's like no that's not what happened this other thing happens like oh okay we can be friends then like that part of their like arc felt very rushed and like i I would have rather either not have the full arc in that way or like allow it to develop a little bit longer and like learn more about her earlier or or something along those lines but i do agree generally that the sense of like them being really good partners like not just friends but also like the friendship like because you have friendships that are just friendships and you have friendships that are also like partnerships Right. And like, this is, this is very much the latter and that feels very like real, right? Like there's something very kind of like believable about the way in which they are friends in particular, even if like, you know, ending with the like, well, we, I can be your friend explicitly is maybe a little bit like tropey (laughs) for my taste. (laughs) Well, so like I, I read it as there was more going on than just like she was the teacher. She did a bad thing. Oh, it didn't really happen that way. And part of that is because we're seeing everything through the shadow child's perspective. So the Mm -hmm. shadow's child's perspective the shadows child's that that is a mouthful anyway <laughs> it's difficult uh, because she's 
she's human at core, like she is an unreliable narrator and we are getting her impressions, Mm. but we're also seeing the actions that happen. And we eventually see her like catching up to speed on them because there is a point where she like realizes that this person is the only person who had been very respectful and asked her how she was doing and tried to make sure she was okay during all the points when she was obviously traumatized when no one else had noticed or, you know, they just assume like you're a ship, you should be able to deal with this. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, okay, well, so like you're starting to see like that she seems she's not giving the emotional responses that you think people should exhibit. So you assume she's like cold and unfeeling and bad to start with. But then like when you re-examine what actions happened, you're like, oh, maybe she was actually she actually cares, but I have to learn how to communicate with her differently than I might communicate Mm. with other people. And the thing about the teacher thing, it's like, okay, well, so this must be what happened, but it's like, that doesn't actually square up with the way I've seen her acting. So then when we find out that like, that's not what happened and that's not why it happened, it's like, okay, well that makes sense that it wouldn't be. Right. Right. No, my problem was less the way that it shook out and more that like one that it happened just over the course of, again, like 15 pages and two that it was like, it it was almost like by the time we learned that like, oh, she's maybe this like slaver, like we've already seen enough of her that I don't believe that. Right. Like we've already seen enough of her that like it's sort of like the ending is so well set up that like that kind of turn doesn't quite <laughs> work. So it's more the turn that's the problem as opposed to the ending being yeah. the problem for if that makes sense for me of like it, it, it could have been like a little bit more. But then, of course, that's a tall ask of like, oh, yes, I want you to make me like this character less is sort of what I'm asking, <laughs> which is why I recognize like little nitpicks that I always make. I can't help making my little nitpick corner. So I'm sorry. Uh, but I, 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 I do. I do no agree. Need- generally that they're what that you know it's like i especially really like your point of like she isn't expressing emotions in a way that is like kind of like 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 the ship isn't able to like feel necessarily the emotions coming from her right but when she looks at what she's done she's like oh this is a person who like cares about me even if she can't express that caring through like emotional she expresses it by like doing the being the only person who does these things for me and like again that's kind of why i call it like almost a partnership style friendship right like it's one that like you know, it's not that it's transactional, but that it is, there's this like sort of like deep layer of understanding on it, but that also doesn't contain some of the things that like maybe other friendships would in terms of being like close emotionally in that way. So there's something, I don't know, very like, you know, it's always heartwarming to see that like, oh yeah, different relationships can like work differently and that's okay. That doesn't make this friendship like less good. Yeah. Right. Like it makes it a different kind of friendship and that's fine. Yeah, I, I definitely... In the end... <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I was just say, in the end, the cocktail that she made Long Chow <laughs> to survive in deep space was the cocktail of friendship and partnership <laughs> mixed. Oh. <laughs> Normally, I would be annoyed by how pat that is, Matt, and this time I find it very endearing. <laughs> um, I agree Good with job. you, Adrian, though, that it does happen very fast, and I think like that's just like... an artifact of the length of the work in general if if we had a novel length to sort of explore i bet we could learn a lot more about the world building and the specific circumstances of that character and how they Mm -hmm. became sort of like 
trusting and not trusting of each other and then back to trusting. But uh, right. Yeah. It's, it does feel like the second act in a novella often gets kind of short shift. I feel right? like it's a like, novella length like is first kind of act. Tricky. Oh shit. Second act, third <laughs> act. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky length, I think. Right. And for the most part, it, it manages the length very nicely. I mean, like there's, I like that I'm left wanting more. Like sometimes reading these shorter stories, I will be a little bit like, I really could have used more to get what was going on. Whereas here it feels like, Oh, I like that. I'm left wanting more. Cause it feels like there's more to explore in the future. Yeah. Like I would totally read more of their story. I, I would totally read like more novellas of these two, like gallivanting around the galaxy. I would absolutely oh, yeah. sign up for the series of oh, yeah. team master and detective stories. Right. It would rule. It would be very good. I wonder if she has plans for that or not. I would be very curious about that. Um, I'm sure she has spoken at it in many interviews of people asking her. So I'll look that up at some point here. (laughs) Cool. Well, are there any final thoughts that we have about the novella that we haven't hit on? No, I mean, I think it was a lot of fun and I recommend it to anyone who wants a nice uh, space opera murder mystery cozy read. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you and if you get through all of Elliot de Bodard's work, um, then try Murderbot. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Murderbot or if you is get through good. all of her novellas and just want more novellas, try Murderbot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she yeah. has a novel coming out in May, I think. So, uh, yeah, the murder bot yeah, novel. The, yeah, the, I just the got the effect. arc for that and so, haven't read it yet. Yep. So the network yep. effect is coming out in May and that should be a longer one. But the murder bot novellas are all linked as well. So it's like sequential. So if you if you like oh, that character okay. and that story, you like actually get more of that character's story as you read more novellas. So should you start at the beginning? I would start then, with the first like, one. Yeah. Uh, which is okay. uh, it's good to know. Red. Yeah. Code red. Something like <laughs> I'm so That's bad how Code at Red sounds sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, I have same names, titles. Yeah, words that that in is general. a series. <laughs> that series and also this series are crying out for TV adaptations. Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. this I would, would make for that. some really great like Netflix style like, you know. Yeah. I would I yeah, would watch I would, both I would, of those in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's like people, I mean, I know people love the, well, I'm not going to get into that. I would much rather this than some <laughs> of the like TV series that are going on right now that people really love. So I'll just put it are, that are way. Are you trying not to get an angry mob after you on Twitter? <laughs> no, I'm just trying to be like nicer in general instead of shitting on things I don't like all the time. So <laughs> we don't have enough followers for people to mob me. So I don't have to worry about that generally. <laughs> It's the the benefit of being small, small change on Twitter. (laughs) It's it's why when I got nearing 500 followers on my personal account, I locked my account. (laughs) So my number of followers can only go down from now on. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I think it's a pro Twitter move, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. I saw a bunch of friends like blow past 500 and all of a sudden hate Twitter. And I was like, okay, that seems like the right call at this point. (laughs) Cool. I, yeah, I also, I loved this 
book. I thought it was super fun. It makes me excited to go read more um, in this series, especially because there's a bunch of like short fiction in it. So it feels like a, you know, kind of thing I can handle right now and eventually read some of Elliot Bodard's longer work. So thank you for choosing it, Julia. I, you know, appreciate this as a, yeah. I think you were also relatively flexible with us too, as we pick something. Well, thank you so and much. Congratulations for, again. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Thanks for letting me choose something that I'd been wanting to read for a while and somehow hadn't gotten around to because that was great and I really enjoyed it. That's what we're here for. <laughs> and thanks for the discussion. You guys are you guys are fabulous. I love listening to you talk about things and it was really fun to talk about them Aww. with you. Well, You're thank fabulous. you. I agree. And speaking of discussions that people should listen to, your podcast is This Is Why We're Like This. And if folks like us, they will like that podcast. So, you know, <laughs> highly recommend. Again, we'll have links for it. Is this is this right? I could only find like a, a, a like Substack website for so, it. Is that how you guys? Um, we actually have This Is Why We're Like This dot com, which just has the episode guide on it. But we do release podcasts through Substack. So um, if you want to subscribe, it's on all the major platforms like Apple right. and um, all of those. So you can subscribe through those. But if you sign up for the newsletter on Substack, you get the show notes and the notification straight to your inbox. So if, if you want the show notes, they have like all the pictures in them and the videos are embedded. So you can just watch it right in your email browser. Um, cool. Like when I say videos, cool. I mean, like if we're talking about commercials, we always link to the videos of commercials that we've watched on YouTube. So you can see. Like, for instance, in the most recent one, the bizarre French detergent commercial that The Simpsons advertised and hear Marge's really atrocious French voice and see all The Simpsons get naked. So if you were signed up for the newsletter, you would have gotten that straight into your inbox. Lucky you. Incredible. Right. <laughs> or should I say incroyable? <laughs> but yeah if you just want to yeah, like what would march's french accent oh my god okay, okay so i will demonstrate i will demonstrate so marge and i'm not gonna sound quite as bad as marge in french but marge in french says it's <laughs> amazing. Wow. It's yeah, really... there's like some voices that don't work in certain languages, and hers in French is an exact it's example. It's just like egregiously <laughs> terrible. Uh, yeah, and there's like this French detergent commercial where she talks a bunch, and then Bart like pulls all the clothes off a clothesline, and that magically makes all the Simpsons actually naked. So we just see all of them naked. Yeah. Like full frontal wow. nudity, Bart, which is alarming. <laughs> That's so not necessary. Right. <laughs> it is a weird thing about French. I mean, I remember when I went to France the first time when I was in high school and like, yeah, they just people get naked in all of their soap commercials for some reason. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, like we were talking <laughs> about this sense, a little I bit guess, in our podcast, but it's like Europeans seem to be a little more chill with the idea that bodies are just bodies and maybe you should get over it, but also still objectifying right. them. So. <laughs> yeah, that's the th that's the thing. It's like I'm not sure actually how much more chill about it they are as much as they want us to think that. <laughs> uh, who knows? Maybe a little bit yeah, of both. Well, well, now that I have all of our European listeners coming after <laughs> me, I, <laughs> I suppose I should quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> oh no! I came on this podcast uh, and now all of Twitter is going to hate me. 
<laughs> well, thank you again so much, uh, both of you. I'm really glad we read this book. This was really fun. It's really great to have it was you awesome. on, Julia. Yeah. You know, you're welcome. Anytime you have a book that you want to read and haven't yet, <laughs> what an excuse to. All right, yes, cool. please come back soon. Yeah, cool. it would it would be lovely, and I uh, hope you both stay well and stay safe. I hope everybody who's listening is able to as well. Indeed. Yep. Indeed. You too. Um, so with that, thanks to WJ for our music and Noah Bradley for our artwork. Um, you can find us at Spectology Pod on Twitter or email us at SpectologyPod at gmail.com. We always love listener comments about the stuff, and we might mention it on a future episode. And yeah, we will chat with everyone next time. Looking forward to it. Bye, y'all. See you later, guys. Bye.